welcome. I'm your host, Carl Nelms, and this is the Bloke Psychology Podcast, where we discuss everything from men's health, mental health, relationships, psychology, masculinity, and pretty much everything that relates to being a man in today's society. Today's episode features Dr. Clive Williams. Now, Clive is an author, he's a psychologist, he's also the other director of Blokepedia. You might recall in a previous episode, we featured the founder and director of Blokepedia, Josh. Well, Clive's the other director there, so he's been a psychologist for a lot longer than I have, and he's been doing some really cool stuff in the mental health space for a long, long time. And we talk about a range of different things in this episode. I really enjoyed chatting to another psychologist working predominantly with men and sharing our experiences about the challenges blokes face in their lives, their sense of self, their identity, the challenges they, they experience in therapy and reaching out for support. And Clive also shares with us how far we have come in Australia when it comes to mental health stigma, specifically around blokes, but also how far we still have to go. Check it out, guys. Let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy it. And welcome back to the Bloke Psychology Podcast, guys. Thank you for tuning in once again. Today, I'm very excited because we have another psychologist on the podcast who I can grill and talk all things mental health and men's mental health. It is Dr. Clive Williams. Clive, welcome to the podcast, mate, and thank you for your time. No worries. My pleasure. So, Clive, first things first, who is Dr. Clive Williams and what are you a doctor of? Uh, I'm a doctor of psychology. Um, I have been a psychologist, as we were just chatting, I think for now 39 years. No wonder I feel old some days. Um, yeah, so um, basically worked in private practice, in hospitals, uh, a very brief stint in the public service, which I'm still receiving therapy for, but, uh, but yeah, kind of mostly hospital or private practice. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And I think I was just saying before we hit record Clive, how excited I am to speak to not only another psychologist, but another bloke as who is a psychologist, but somebody who's been in the profession for much longer than I have. There's no need to exercise. (laughs) Well, but 39 years, you must have seen a tremendous change in the stigma of mental health more broadly, but in particular around male mental health, for sure. I mean, there was, there was no such thing as men's health, men's mental health. It just, no, I mean, you know, as a lot of young psychologists coming out of university, um, it might still be the case. I'm not quite sure, but you would end up in areas of like, uh, prisons, child protection, or disability. That was a starting ground for a lot of, at least back in my time. And those are all fairly challenging areas. Um, But uh, yeah, no such thing as men's mental health or anything like that. I mean, so far off, so far off the radar. I mean, back then it would be like, you know, give yourself an uppercut sort of stuff. So this might be naive. To help. <laughs> Give yourself an uppercut. <laughs> Good way to describe it. This might be naive of me, Clive, but 
did men 30, 40 years ago go to counselling unless they were mandated? So my first practice, well, for me, it was a bit different. My first practice was in the gang has been medical centre. So that was the, the, the first kind of openly gay and lesbian facility, at least in Queensland. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember that Queensland was kind of like a different planet back then. And there was a guy called Joe Bajocki Peterson. And you've got to remember too, that at that time, homosexuality was just come off the list of a mental illness and decriminalized, but still illegal. So, so I was at least in my practicing, um, at least in that part of the practicing, a lot of young gay men. Um, but otherwise, predominantly, yeah, it was mostly female clients. It was, um, it would be the rare, I guess, straight man who would, who would cross my door. But that was just my experience. It may have been different for others. Mm. Well, wow, there's, there's a double layer of stigma there back then to, to be gay and a bloke seeking therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was... Um, there were, it was pretty exciting, actually. Like, yes, it, it was... Um, it was sort of doing the impossible. So in, in my childhood, you know, there was poofters and faggots and perverts and all sorts of names. And then suddenly you were this psychologist, which is a bit of status, a bit of respectability in a medical center with other doctors and stuff. So, so once um, Jackie Peterson kind of disappeared, that, that change was pretty rapid, but um, it was, it was pretty unbelievable there for a while. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I so you started working out in a, at a medical center that was specialized or the clinic you were working in was specialized for uh, gay and lesbian community. Yeah. Was it? Now I'm trying to think, I think I had a couple of practices on the go. So one was just your run of the mill suburban stuff. And the other one was, um, yeah, specifically gay and lesbian. When there was only gay and lesbians, there was no trans, there was no queer. It was just, it was only the gays and the lesbians. And things have expanded over time. Um, we had, it was an old house. One room had been painted. Um, there was no reception area. There was a desk that was across a doorway. <laughs> and you came up to the door and the desk was on the other side of the doorway. And that's where the receptionist sat. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> that, that stigma, Clive, uh, regarding the gay and lesbian community, which is now, of course, the LGBTQI, I think, A+. Plus. Apologies yeah, if I'm forgetting anything there. But that in itself has changed significantly over the last few decades. But I'm curious in rural, more rural and regional areas, especially of, of Queensland, does that stigma still have a long way to go compared to the metropolitan areas of Australia? Um, I can only really speak from <clears throat> my personal experience and I haven't, I haven't got any shit for it really. Like, um, as a younger man, it was a, it was kind of a daily battle. But, but as an adult and once being out, in some ways it's the brave person who will attack you face to face. 
you know, it's different when it's invisible and you're just talking about a, a group of people in a derogatory way. But when the person's in front of you, and even might be a person with a little bit of status, you know, like psychology comes with a little bit of its status, suddenly people, I don't know if they watch their P's and Q's or, or secretly leave and go, gosh, he's a big faggot, or I don't know. But um, I've never actually, um, once I've got to adulthood, it's been pretty good. There's been the occasional being spat on and stuff like that, but um, it's been very occasional. So mostly it's been pretty fine. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's that's really good to hear, Clive. I was I was hesitant about asking that about what you might say, but that that's incredible to hear. Can I can I tell a funny story? Well, I think it's funny. This may offend people, but I think it's funny. Um, so moving to the country, um, we have these incredible friends, and in they're younger than us, but they're really our mentors. They know a lot about thoroughbreds. They know a lot about farms and tractors and you know, injuries and horses. And so we've, we're learning a lot from them. And one day, um, this particular filly was playing up and one of the good friends of mine went, you faggot at this horse, right? And she suddenly realised that <laughs> I'm there. Gonna, and I just kind of gently said to her, I'm pretty sure you mean that in a good way. And like, she was so apologetic and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so what I guess the point I'm trying to make is that in that case, there's this use of language, which, but, and so that there's that term, which has its history and its derogatory. But from those people, from that person, I have only ever been treated with respect or um, friendliness or whatever. So it's, it's this kind of, um, is that is that a good example? Like yeah, the, yeah. Um, that it, I've been invited to their homes, you know, and barbecues, and they do special things for us, and I just so yeah, it's it's it might be that kind of experience, but nothing personal, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's yeah. fantastic, Clive. I mean, you must. It's one thing to be a male psychologist too, but to be a gay male psychologist, I imagine, is even rarer still. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you probably know yourself. I mean, years ago, when you'd go to conferences or training, it would be a case of spot the bloke. I mean, <laughs> we were few and far between. <laughs> but, you know, over those years, it's got better. Um, yeah, I don't really know. Um, maybe. I don't know. I have to think more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, Clive, too, general, before we get go down the specific male mental health path, how do you think Australia is faring now, given where we were say, maybe 20, 30 years ago in terms of mental health more generally, in terms of the stigma, the conversation, the narrative around mental health? Oh, chalk and cheese, day and night. I mean, what other cliche can I use? Um, I think probably the most significant shift was um, Medicare coming on board. Um, again, maybe I'm just a pessimist, but I never thought that the gatekeepers would ever allow psychologists to be able to rebate Medicare. 
And I think once that happened, which again, at least in my mind, was an impossibility, um, you know, something becomes possible, I think that it opens doors to people and in some ways says, this is legit. Mm. Like your medical rebate, you know, for your GP, this is legit. It's being recognised and and I think over the years people have just made use of that. So it's kind of, you know, once upon a time you never knew anybody who saw a therapist. And my guess is now that probably everybody knows one or two people who've seen a therapist or you know, maybe not a psychologist, but maybe this or a counsellor or somebody else, but it's much more normative now. Um, yeah. It's still... I think for men, there's still this kind of, you know, what's the point? We're going to chat. Nothing's going to change. Give me a break. I'm not paying somebody that much money for one hour just out of that, you know. But, but I see when people start to realise it's about analysis and skills and new directions, I think, yeah, that, that's opened that door. But, yeah, I think that's been really significant. Um, I think the whole shift from mental illness to mental health is significant. I think, uh, and this may just be me, but that whole increased awareness now that, well, maybe this is overstating it, but but my understanding is that um, medication is a good support for people in difficulty. But if you are in an unhappy workplace, if you are in an unhappy marriage, if you are experiencing grief or loss or stress on an ongoing basis, no amount of medication can really, you know, click the fingers and that's all, hey, presto. It involves you changing some or what you do to accommodate all those things. So I think there's increased awareness about that. My, my parents' generation is really, what's the pill for that? Yeah. I think that's really shifted as well. Yes, the meds are great, but there's this other aspect as well. Mm. Yeah, like like yourself, Clove. I mean, you, I could completely agree regarding the medication because so many clients that we see, which I'm sure you've experienced over the years, they explain their situation to you, and then they talk about their their symptoms and whatnot. And I find myself saying to these these guys, "Hey, what you're experiencing actually makes sense, given." what you're going through or the environmental context you're in like that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a reason that you're experiencing high anxiety or panic attacks that that's actually telling you something. Yeah. No medication, as you said, is going to cure that. No, I mean, I I don't don't know if you've had the same experience, but if I had a dollar for every time somebody say with depression, it said to me, I don't know why I'm depressed. You know, I've got this, I've got that. But then usually in the first 10 minutes, they will tell you a whole range of life events. Mm. They usually focus around loss. And I might just say to them, what have you done with that loss? And they'll go, what do you mean, what have I done with it? And I'll go, well, what'd you do? And they go, and if it's a, if it's a bloke, we'll go, I just got on with it. What are you talking about? You know, like, or, you know, I had a six pack before I went to sleep every night or whatever it was. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's that growing awareness of what actually is required to shift things. Yeah, that that grief and loss that that you just touched on, I think that that's one area for blokes still that we have a long way to go, long long way. Because I I think I had a client recently 
and I was talking to him about this, that still when it's, especially if we're talking about the death of a loved one or a family member, too many blokes end up stepping up and becoming the rock for everybody else. And just, as you said, getting on with it, getting back to work, like, no, I took a day off for the funeral, but then why would I take another day off? Uh, but then a year or two later, realizing that, wow, like the suicide of my mate still is really impacting me or the loss of dad is still really impacting me. Because as you said, they haven't done anything with that loss. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, you do need to get on with things. You might need to step it up. You know, people do look to men for those kinds of roles. But... You also need the polar opposite skill. You also need an ability to have some downtime and say, okay, I was there for everybody today for my dad or mom's funeral or whatever it is, and now I just need someone to be there for me. Um, you know, a guy told me recently that uh, he, he left the funeral of a friend and had been on top of everything. And then on the drive home, to his sort of utter surprise, was overwhelmed by emotions. And I think, excuse me, I'm burping my coffee. Um, I think that... Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were breaking down into this guy. <laughs> well, I, it is very good coffee. I'm, I do quite like it. So, um, But he was overwhelmed by this emotion as he left, you know, this... Um, this um, funeral, which was a suicide of a mate. And I think for men, this is not uncommon that you can be completely unaware of your own emotional response until it suddenly sneaks up on you. I used to run this small men's group in a, in a little hospital. And, you know, you've got your fireys, you've got your ex-servicemen, you know, and at that stage it was sort of more Vietnam vets, you know, these hard-ass bastards, you know, they, they want to be considered hard men. And they were all in this group. The reason I got them together was because they had all told me individually, I'm in the middle of Woolies and I'm crying in the aisle. Or I've, I've watched some movie and it's really upset me and there's this real, what the hell's going on? And they then, they, then they think, well, I'm crazy. You know, and in a really short space of time, you can kind of go, well, tell me what's happened to you. And it's just loss, 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 grief, grief, loss. And you go, well, what have you done with that? And they go, they usually say, bottle it up. And you go, there you go, the bottle's full. Hmm. You know, now, now how are we going to unpack that bottle? So I think it's not uncommon for men to suddenly be overwhelmed by that and be really ashamed or even scared of it. But very quickly you can, well, hopefully very quickly, you can normalize it when you get people to, to take stock of the loss that has actually occurred in their life. Mm. You know, and then you start to, well, what does it mean to unbottle? You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. I'm mindful, Clive, there probably be some guys who listen to this who go, well, yeah, there, there's two psychs talking about grief and loss and, you know, how we need, what are you doing with those losses? Yeah. What, what should guys do, in your opinion, with a loss? Oh, just harden the F up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Suck <No>. it up. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. 
all of us, I mean, you know, there's all of us need, ideally, I think maybe three or four, but at least one person that you can be yourself with, that you can be vulnerable enough, open enough to just be you. And being you is going to be the capable you and the sad you. And so it's having those people who you let see your grief. And, you know, you said before that this is probably important for men. I think it's super important for men because my experience is that when men allow themselves to grieve, and that is supported and witnessed by someone near and dear to them, or maybe even a therapist, but hopefully someone near and dear, it tenderizes men. These really um, hard-ass bastards, you know, that these tough guys, you can still be tough and, you know, and be tough where you need to be tough, but then you can be more tender with the people who need you to be more tender. I'm thinking of a Vietnam vet I work with and he, he was pretty tough <laughs> and he, you know, he, he, could, he could drink and he was tough and he, a lot had happened to him. And we did some of this work about trying to unbottle what had happened to him. And then it took me a while, but I, I managed to <laughs> persuade him to have a meeting with some adult children who had, by this stage in his life, pretty much disowned him. It's just a hard ass. Anyway, so they came along. And in that meeting, um, you know, he, we'd done some work and he was more in touch with emotions and that unbottling. And that surfaced in that meeting. And what happened was I think his son just stood up and put his hand on his shoulder. Now, it's no, you know, it, 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 on one level, it's no big deal. But on another level, that's life-changing. Mm. Like, suddenly that son kind of goes, holy shit, I can see my dad's human. And... I mean, getting upset as I talk about it now because it was so moving that suddenly greater connection becomes possible. And I think that's, that's pretty amazing. So I think it's super important for men to kind of be in touch with grief and to become more tender and sensitive. And then that, take that back to your relationships. I mean, that's, that's gold. That's such a powerful story, that image that I'm picturing of the son putting his hand on dad's shoulder. I mean, as you said, that's probably the first time that that son saw his dad for who he really was, you know, had a true sense of authenticity about him. That, that son was not coming to that meeting. I think I, I sort of put some pressure on the sister to kind of, you know, twist his arm a bit and look, it'll only be 15 minutes and it's not far to drive and you know, try to do all this cajoling. And then when you can get those opportunities, you can have that experience. Mm. Yeah, life-changing. And it that, doesn't mean life is perfect, but it certainly means life has the potential to change direction. It's not going to rewrite all the wrongs. You know, it, he still has to be responsible for how he was as a husband, as a father. But there's a slight change in the direction of the relationship. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Can't change the past, but you can redirect where things go 
from now yeah. on. Yeah. I often get this question, as I'm sure you do, Clive, with, with your work as a psychologist, but also with bloke Peter and Josh. But I'm going to throw it at you anyway. So many blokes struggle to do what that veteran did to be authentic with those closest to him to lower that stoic facade. Now, why do you think that is? Oh, well, because, I mean, I immediately just go back to my upbringing, my family culture, the, the wider culture. Um, you're a little boy and you're supposed to be tough and there are certain things you're supposed to like and you're not like, and you're not supposed to do these other things. And, and what happens, parents police that I still see it now. I still see people in my own family, you know, and I, when I see it, I just slowly walk to the wall and hit my head against the wall a few times. <laughs> um, and they'll say things like to the little boy um, who might be hurt or upset, don't pay attention to it. You know, and it is tricky because you do want your kids to have this kind of get up and go and not pay too much attention to the falling over. But there are times in a child's life when it's real distress. And to be told that your real distress is nothing to be dismissed. Like, so that can come from a parent. And then what happens is that other little boys police other little boys. I probably did it. Other boys definitely did it to me. Like, um, when I was growing up, I didn't know what, this sounds ridiculous, but I didn't know what Pufta was. And, but I, I would use that against people, Pufta, and, and that was used against me if there were certain behaviours that somehow, you know, went outside the line. If you, I mean, barely now, I can, barely now, if I really focus and have my really good glasses on, can I kick and catch balls? So you, you can imagine, like, this is hopeless as a kid. Um, but all sorts of stuff where we're policing each other's behaviors. And then it gets a bit more intense in adolescence because then you're trying to establish a male identity, which is important. And you want to be anything far removed from anything that's feminine or soft or whatever. So we get more policing of each other's behaviors. So there's all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, and then there are family cultures that, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's just my working class background, but the people in my family would give you the shirt off their back. They're very generous people, but there's, there was no attention to an emotional inner life. Mm. And it's kind of, um, and I see that as kind of almost widespread and as almost Aussie. You can see this each summer, you know, we're, we're there for people with floods and fires. People are incredibly generous. But if somebody says, you know, shit, my, 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 I lost some livestock, we go, come on, look, it'll be all right. We can rebuild. Um, you live in this great country. The sun's out. Let's have a beer or whatever. And so stuff goes back in the bottle. Mm, and here's some money. <laughs> and here's some money. And we don't. You know, so I think that it's particularly Australian to kind of, when we don't acknowledge that there is an emotional life in all of us, 
that from time to time, not all the time, we don't need to turn into Oprah Winfrey, but from time to time, we need to make time to chat about what the hell went on on the inside. Yeah, anyway, I'm going to box now. No, no, no. I love I'm glad I threw that question at you, Clive, because it's one I'm sure you get a lot and that I get a hell of a lot too. But I love that how you put that about how boys and then teenagers and then men we end up policing each other, don't we? Yeah. Because even even the changes that have have come about in the last few decades, I mean, I still see this, especially with teenagers that are struggling with their sexuality or just struggling with that sense of self and how they fit into the world as a, as a man. Yeah that there's still very rigid parameters around policing amongst teenage boys. You know, are oh, you pussy? You know, poofed is probably not as prevalent anymore, but are oh, you a pussy? Are oh, you girl? Your girl's dick? All these sort of things that, yeah. that, that is communicating to these guys, hey, you've, you've gone outside of the parameters, haven't you? Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, and the implications of that, that, that's huge. And just lastly, you know, you said the Australian family, uh, we can be very generous stereotypically, but it's about that lack of acknowledgement about what is actually going on emotionally. Yeah. I'm sure you see this, but the amount of clients that I see and you talk about their family and they go, yeah, yeah, no, mom and dad, they, they gave me everything. They were great. And you're sitting there going, yes, yes, but let's dig a bit deeper. Yeah. And they often go, no, nah, there was no nah, mom and dad didn't usually fight, but then they'll say, oh yeah, but we never really spoke about much. Yeah, yeah. I think, wow, the, the, the implications of that long-term on how that adult internalizes things yeah. are huge, especially for men. When I was a young psychologist and knew everything, um, <laughs> and people would sort of say stuff like, you know, well, maybe there's some stuff that you're not fully conscious of. I go, oh, for God's sake, you know, I'm really bright and intelligent and I know myself. But in my own life, and then with probably many clients, and they'll come in and they'll go, yeah, my childhood was fine. <laughs> and then as you kind of, as they start to trust you a bit more and you kind of talk a bit more and you ask a few more questions, like you said, you can see this realisation on their face, oh, maybe that wasn't so fine. <laughs> I felt really lonely or, gee, I didn't really... Yeah, no one really saw me or no, I had like, and, and you kind of go, well, what was that like for you back then? And you can see people starting to realize that our conscious brain may not know all of us. And while you don't want to sit down and navel gaze all day, it is good to reflect on, well, how did I get here and what is important to me? And, what, what do I feel and all that sort of stuff. And so you, you can see people, you know, when, when <laughs> in particularly men who, who, you know, when you, they've got these words of description, how are things good or fine? That's their emotional kind of repertoire. Maybe when you first meet them, sorry if I'm talking to someone right now, but as they reflect more on their own lives and you can see that there's this whole emotional life that never got any attention. And so they learned, don't pay attention. It's unimportant. Until suddenly that bottle's full and then you're forced to pay attention. Absolutely forced to pay attention. Yeah. Well, it's those moments that often end up or get guys 
in front of people like ourselves, isn't it? When shit hits the fan and they, they have forced to pay attention because their wife, their sister, their friend has said, Oi, you need to get some support or they find themselves driving and had a panic attack or breaking down and going, wow, something's yeah. not right here. Yeah. I sort of have this secret theory. So, so don't tell anyone, but I think, you know, you can probably bottle up stuff depending on how much life event happens to you, you know, that, that bottle might get quicker a lot sooner, but you can bottle stuff up for a long time during your teens and your twenties and your thirties, but late thirties, early forties, that bottle might be getting pretty full. And, and then the stuff that you used to be able to do to just put it back in, it doesn't fit that bottle's full. So that's kind of when sometimes the shit hits the fan that and then if you're if you're telling yourself i can't tell anyone and you know for a lot of men our go-to is work harder so then you're doing more pretending that you're fine you're working harder getting more tired and then before you know you're into fall over mode you know like it's it's tricky and it's just this simple skill of being able to unbottle at some times that's what resilience and is, is all about this ability to unbottle if and if we just made that more well i think we are i mean the fact that we're chatting now we are but as that becomes more widespread and part of our male identity that, that can only be a good thing interesting you raised that point clive about uh late 30s early 40s do you think that's I mean, obviously, after 30, 40 years of bottling things up, that's one thing. But do you think also that's usually the point where blokes are becoming fathers? There's the added responsibility of being a dad, what that means, financial obligation, one income, and all of that as well? Yeah. I think um, one of the really great things that I see in young men is they really take um, parenthood super seriously. And in, in lots of ways, what's still prescribed is that provider, you know, that breadwinner stuff. And a lot of men really step it up at that point. But as you probably know, after the arrival of child number one or child number two, and there's this whole different dynamic than with your partner, a lot of those men then start feeling like, well, all I do is provide and I'm the backup support parent, the main parent and the main relationships in this house is mum and kids, and I'm on this periphery. And so then, then you get a lot of tired men feeling alone, you know, and that's not good. Mm. So it, it can be a really shitty time. <laughs> and, and people look at you and go, oh, you got your partner, you got your kids, you got your job, you got your house, oh man. And they'll say, you know, I should feel grateful. I should feel fine. And I feel like shit. Well, here's why. Yeah. How, how often do you hear, Clive, that, you know, on paper, my life's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always think, I, I said to people, you know, and this is where my idea of that model of change. I meet a lot of very busy people who have created a life that no longer fits. Mm -hmm. at some point 
they have devoted this time and energy to creating this life. And it's really hard to pinpoint, but at some point, the cons outweighing the pros. But because you're normally so busy, you just think, oh, no, no, push through, push through. I should be happy. I should be happy. I've got to all push through, work harder. And it just gets worse. Yeah. And I see these people all the time and they're telling themselves, well, I've spent all this time and effort creating this life, but secretly there's big chunks of it I don't really like anymore. And that's the start of a whole new chapter, you know? Yeah. And often around, I mean, I'm curious how, how often you see guys coming in with maybe not at first, but once, once you connect the dots, you can see that it is postnatal issues effectively, because that's, that's one thing I'm always preaching about that. I think that is not spoken about enough. The statistics that exist are wildly inaccurate for a number of different reasons, but, the amount of guys I see, regardless whether they're coming in for gambling or porn addiction or anxiety, what it is, and you peel it back. Okay, so when did this sort of start to become a real problem? Yeah. Two years ago, okay. And you had your first child two years ago. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you find a very similar thing, Clive? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you are super busy or super tired and you're not really into this self-reflection, you may not get your timelines right. Other times, though, you know, guys are spot on. Yeah, after that first child, things were different and never been the same. So it is, it is a big shift. And nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, I've created this life and it's shit. <laughs> nobody wants to sort of say that out loud, but that might be the case, you know, like, well, what, what kind of life do you want? What, what kind of life... And that's the big question. What kind of life do you want? What kind of life really resonates with who you are? Um, I'm working with quite a few men at the moment. And what they will say is, um, I'm, I'm super busy. I'm super tired. They'll start to see that the cons are outweighing the pros. The life that they're busy maintaining no longer fits. But then they'll say, I can't change. All these people are depending on me. God, if I'd had a dollar for every time, you know, I heard that mm. on an island. But, you know, and you kind of get this resistance, but, you know, and then you can kind of say to people, well, what, what will happen if you don't contemplate some change somewhere? So you get people to think ahead and they'll think, hmm, that future's not too rosy. <laughs> I might just be really, really unhappy and then be a really crap dad and a crap partner. So, so once then they start to think about, well, what might be possible? You can start to get people to contemplate rather than being in the habit of living, what is it, what is it about life, that, the kind of life that you would really like to have that resonates with who you really are? The other day I had this, this uh, farmer, he's, he's a great guy, he's very funny, he's got this he's a great sense of humour. And I'm seeing him and his wife and um, he's really banging on to his kids about, you find what you love. If you find what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Da, da, da. Banging them over the head because kids aren't listening. And I reflected to him his own life. And I said, do you do what you want to do in your life? I've never done anything I ever wanted to do. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going... 
all right, how's that working for you? Like, you're preaching this and you're doing that. I said, mate, you know, kids don't listen to what you say. They listen to what you do. Mm. And, and he's so unhappy with the life that he pushes himself to do. And I think this is where psychologists can be quite revolutionaries, where we kind of say to people, you know, you don't have to be part of the empire. You can, that's my Star Wars reference for the day. You can, you can go, you don't, you don't have to go to the dark side. What is it about you and your life that would really resonate with you? Yeah. You still have to be responsible and pay bills and all sorts of stuff. But what, what would, what would make you feel more alive in your life? as opposed to just in the habit of living. You know, you meet these people and they, I feel sorry for them. They think it's a joke, but I, they go, different day, same shit. I think, yeah. oh my God, you're living like that? Oh my God. Like, but if you can kind of get time to people to contemplate, well, what, what might a different like life look like where you could still be this great provider, maybe not so great, but still a provider, that have more of a life. There's a, when I was a young psychologist and, you know, again, when I knew everything and I had this guy and this is back in the eighties and I'm pretty sure he was earning $80,000 a year back in the eighties. And like back in the eighties, that was a lot, a lot of money. Right. And he was this chef and, you know, he would work these crazy hours. He came, his marriage is falling apart. He was a complete stranger to these young children because he was always working when, they were all at home. And I dared to suggest, like, maybe too abruptly, of course, you know, running in with solutions as young therapists don't want to do. Why don't you change jobs? And, um, man, he just flew, flew at me. You know, oh, I can't fucking do that, you idiot, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, so you kind of, hmm, that one didn't go too well, chalk that up to experience. But I actually ran into him like that maybe 10 years later in a street know that they'd closed up the street and I didn't remember him he came up to me and he said I did change jobs I now am not a community recreation officer I am so much less but my life is so much more now that probably sounds a bit of a twee cliched story but but that's true sometimes as men falling into that I've got to make a buck I've got to be this great provider my kids have to go to this kind of school. We have to have these kinds of bells and whistles. Well, that's all fine, but how's your relationship? Or are you too tired? Do your kids know you, but are you constantly away? Like, are your partner and your kids demanding all these things? Or is it just you who thinks you need to do it? it, it they're very good questions to ask. And for a lot of guys, Clive, I find that, a lot of guys have never even thought about that or asked themselves those questions, have they? Because they've just got caught on that treadmill of more, 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 more equals better and provider equals work harder, better, faster. But they've never actually sat back to go, hey, as you put, what do I actually want to do in my life? What do I want my life to look like? Getting yeah. in touch with my values. Where's my sense of purpose as opposed to just being, I mean, one guy ages ago said something to me and I, I repeat it constantly. He said, I felt like last 20 years, I've just been a cork in the ocean just going with the currents and he goes i've woken up the kids have turned 20 they've moved out and i've gone what the hell happened yeah yeah not good i mean uh i have a goddaughter, and you know she's just finished school and 
it just does my head in when you would see pressure on her to know what she wants to do for the rest of her life. Thank God she resisted. Um, but it's still happening where we're, there's this crazy idea that you should know what you want to do for the rest of your life. I mean, the speed of change in this world now is so rapid. I mean, that is just old thinking. I mean, that is just craziness. And to, I don't mean to paint this picture that, oh, you know, Carl, you can, if you want to paint, you can just leave school and you can paint all day and, you know, you can just live off weeds from the garden and be this really cool <laughs> guy. No, no, you still have to be responsible. But there needs to be some life in your life and the life in your life normally comes from something that really engages you. You know, if you look at Seligman and his flourishing stuff, it's about being engaged with things in our lives that brings these positive emotions that makes us more resilient and creates meaning. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we actually do that to younger men, to younger people. It's still much like, well, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer or I don't know, whatever it is, get the trade, whatever it is. But is that actually who you are? Mm. Do you know what I mean? It might be. And that youth yeah. me mental health crisis, I mean, Clive, that one of our offices, our big offices around quite a highly affluent area with a lot of grammar schools and, we have year nine and tens coming in saying that the school is already telling them, Hey, if you want to study law, it's advisable that you do VCE maths and this in year 10. And you have 15, 16 year olds thinking, and it drives me bonkers. And then because the schools put the pressure on, then the parents put the pressure on. And I often have parents not too happy with me because I'll say to them and the, the child, Hey, if you don't want to, do this you don't have to do it like yeah. you genuinely do not want to do it you do yeah. not have to do vc you don't have to do that trade you don't have to do that it just drives me bonkers this especially for guys i mean we know that it's thrown around the frontal lobe and all of that's not developed till mid-20s but you've got the pressure put on 10 years prior yeah and i mean you know i mean this is the chat we don't often think of psychologists as slightly subversive but i think it <laughs> Part of the role might be to be slightly subvert and change culture in an ongoing basis in that, you know, I've worked a bit with lawyers and as a profession, they're a pretty unhappy profession with high rates of addiction and high rates of marital breakdown. And, you know, you can kind of throw those stats into the session and kind of goes, is this really the future you're kind of, and it's a whole adversarial kind of system there's no systems approach to it it's, there's a right and there's a wrong you know systems theory never got into law so um and, and a, a young man a young woman that may just not be who they are they kind of some are for sure but it may not be who they are and so because parents love their kids and they want them to be financially secure there's the push push but you know i think it's our job to kind of go well Will your child be emotionally secure? What's that? What does that even mean? You know, because parents are still about this, the financial security, which is a real concern, but you don't have to give up the financial security, but you also have to consider this other, well, is your child emotionally secure? Is that, is that thing that we're going to spend so many hours doing 
is that going to make them feel alive or make them feel like the walking dead? Yeah. You know, walking that fine line for us, isn't it? Now, Clive, I'm mindful of your time, but I do want to ask you about your, uh, your book before we end the episode. So tell us a little bit about your book. Look, Josh said I'm really crap at promoting my book, so I'm going to give my best shot today. It's a great <laughs> book. It's the best book ever written. Um, no, it's, a, it's called A Mud Map for Living. And what I've done is I've taken this idea of the hero's journey, which is this recurring storyline across time, across cultures. And I got really obsessed with why would the same story be repeated across time and across culture. And uh, at first I didn't believe it, but you quickly realise that a lot of the plays, the novels, the movies that we're seeing, the storyline underneath is the same. So then as a psychologist, I was like, well, what the hell's going on there? Why is this one story seem to be so important? And what I think I hit on about maybe 25 years ago now, is that it's, it is a bit of a mud map for how life unfolds. Um, and so the book is really about the stages of the hero's journey, how to recognise where you are at each particular stage, you know, how to recognise that stage and what you need to do to get to the next stage. So it's, it's, you don't have to pick it up and read it beginning to end. It's a dip in, dip out. It's uh, not a self-help book that's going to make you rich or famous or give you a six-pack or, <laughs> I don't know, whatever that stuff. It, it, it's a book to just navigate life closer to a life that more clearly resonates with who you are. And I think that's what the hero's journey does. Okay, there's my sales pitch. How is that? I like it. I think, I think guys of all ages could do with a book that helps them with that. So where, where can people purchase it, Clive? Uh, Amazon.com.au uh, or both the American one and the Australian, um, a mud map for living. You can also um, go to the website, a mud map for living.com.au. Uh, there's excerpts from the book there to maybe if you want a bit of a taste. Um, or you can contact me directly and I'll send you a hard copy. So the, all those online ones are eBooks, but I can also send a hard copy away if you'd like that, if you want to contact me directly. Awesome. And we'll put all the links into the uh, show notes of this episode. Clive, I can't believe how quickly the time has flown. <laughs> it's, we've almost clocked up an hour already, so I won't take any more of your time, but I've thoroughly enjoyed picking your brain about your experience and your thoughts on everything mental health, men's mental health uh, and the various other topics we sort of delved into. Where can people find you if they want to see you as a, as a psychologist, as a therapist? Where are you based in Oz and are you doing the telehealth stuff or tell us all about that? So um, I have two little clinics, uh, one at a tiny place called Badua, B-O-O-D-U-A, which is maybe 30 minutes outside of Toowoomba. So I operate from Badua, uh, but I also have a town office in uh, Toowoomba itself. Uh, and that's yeah, in Clifford Street in Toowoomba. But, you know, for about the last seven years, I've probably, even before COVID, I've been online for many years, you know, because clients travel and before you know it, you're seeing clients in Budapest or Mexico or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I also do the online stuff as well. 
Awesome. So regardless where anybody's listening around Australia, around the world, they can uh, go to your website and book in and have a session with Dr. Clive Williams. Absolutely. Thanks for the plug. No, no worries at all. I had to ask you too, before you go, I noticed on your website, you don't have waiting rooms. No. Tell us about that quickly. I was curious. Well, I mean, seriously, I think waiting rooms are fine if you're going to see your GP or your dentist. But if the psychologist is in that local surgery, do you really want to sit there and possibly run into someone that you know and they're going, oh, you're here for the flu shot? And you're going, uh, no, I'm, I'm here for the psychologist. <laughs> it, you just don't want to do it. And uh, I just have never liked the idea of it. And so people thank me for it, just kind of like, I stagger visits. You can come and go in the, in the suburb, in the town. You don't run into anybody that you know. And it can just be highly confidential. You know, and sometimes you do have clients with a bit of a profile. So it just offers that extra thing. But also, too, you, you don't want your neighbour to know that, gee, you and your partner are seeing Clive for couples therapy. I mean, it just... Yeah. Yeah. So how do you actually operate that? What, do you just text them when, when to come in or...? Uh, so I stagger half an hour between each session. I write my notes, I run to the lid, I clean my whiteboard, um, do all that stuff. And, um, yeah, people just kind of come and go. And um, the system generates uh, an SMS and, you know, tells them where to come and when to come. And, yeah. I mean, I think once or twice, you know, if I, if I have a crisis, you know, I might need to hospitalise somebody. That's That's pretty rare. Then I'll have to sort of <laughs> mid-crisis go... Hang on a tick. I've got to tell people to come later, but that's pretty rare. Otherwise, I just stagger it. And yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, Clive, I'll let you go. But last thing that I always ask guests: if if there's a male or just anybody at all listening to this episode and they're struggling or they've resonated with some things that you've talked about that we've talked about, what would you advise that first step to be? Apart from seeing yourself, of course. Yeah. Look, have a think about who you might chat to. It might be someone that you know and love. It might be a complete stranger who's more likely professional. But life's a marathon. No one ever got through without support. Love it, Clive. Thank you so much, mate. We'll uh, have you on down the track and keep doing all the amazing work you're doing in your practice and also with Blogpedia. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate the chat. Thanks again for tuning in to the Bloke Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please share the episode with a friend or family member, subscribe to the podcast, or leave us a review. If you want to get in contact or find out any more about the work that we do at Bloke Psychology, just head to blokepsychology.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.